I was thinking about what it was like to be a kid when you were just bold and audacious and didn't have a care in the world and you could pretend to be whatever you want. And when I was a kid, I loved pretending to be a warrior, which was always weird in Canada, but I loved to pretend to be a warrior. And my grandfather, he would make uh, swords and shields out of wood. He was a carpenter for me. And, and I'd have this sword and I would be this warrior and I could connect with this inner part of myself. Alistair, if you didn't know, means defender of mankind. And so I would connect with that and I'd feel this sense of congruity with uh, who I am and who I want to be in the world. Uh, but then you grow up and you lose this sense of really turning out to be that person you thought you might be. I mean, maybe you were the person who's like, I'm going to be a dentist and I'm going to change the world one tooth at a time. But then you get at it and people don't brush their teeth and it's frustrating. Uh, and, and whatever it may be, whatever that vision was, often we don't turn out into the careers we wanted, let alone the person we thought we might become. Our passage today comes from the book of Hebrews. As a church, we've been studying this letter for a while. If you are just joining us, you're joining us actually in the 10th chapter of the letter, so you're a little behind. I'll catch you up. This was a letter written to a church from a pastor two millennia ago. And he's writing to urban Christians who are struggling, who are wrestling with the reality of what it means to follow Jesus in their time and their place. And they're starting to doubt it. They're starting to wonder, is it really worth the cost and the frustration and the challenges that come with it? And the author, time and time again in this letter, says, yes, Jesus is worth it because he's better than you can imagine. He's a better priest. He's our great and faithful high priest. He offers a better covenant, a better way of relating to God, and he's a better sacrifice. And it's this last point that Jesus is a better sacrifice that we've been dwelling on the past few weeks because it's central to the author's argument. It's central to surviving in the midst of a city that is often at tension with what we believe. And so this morning, as we reflect on our passage, there's one question that we need to ask, and I think it's a pertinence uh, to what it means to live here and now. How do we become perfectly holy people? How do we become perfectly holy people? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our Bibles home with you. It's our gift to you, and everything's also on the screen. Hebrews 10. <laughs> and that cough was coming for a while. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, have, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I remember when my daughter Ansley first discovered her own shadow. It was a lot of fun. You know, what that? She didn't have verbs down yet. What that? And 
I said, it's your shadow. And, you know, she'd lift her paw and it would move and she'd move a leg and it would move. And then she noticed that daddy has a shadow. She said, daddy, what that? It's my shadow. And so she started chasing it and, you know, she'd jump into it and she'd be playing with my shadow. It's a ton of fun. The problem is if, if, if she sat down and said, I love you, daddy, to the shadow. If she started hold, trying to hold the shadow's hand, I had to help her out a little. Like, and maybe you guys haven't figured this out yet, but you're not your shadow. Right? The shadow, it's cast by me. It's a part of me, but you're, you're not your shadow. The priests, tents, tabernacle, patterns of worship, all these sacrifices that were a part of the Torah, the law, the way Israel used to follow God. It was all just a shadow. A shadow put there by God, a shadow cast by God, so to speak. A shadow that helped his people remain in a relationship with him, but a shadow. <coughs> The law, this law, this shadow, the Torah, it helped people understand how to live a holy life. God put it in place so they would know his ways, so they could become holy like him. And it had a whole set of regulations, sacrifices you could offer when you fell short of living the way that God desired you to live. So sacrifices, they were offered Again and again, year after year, bull after bull, goat after goat, because there was always an awareness. There was always a consciousness of sin. The law served as a reminder that you were not perfectly holy. You kept falling short. And so the repetitive rhythm of sacrifices over and over again. Yes, it helped address the gap between your unholiness and the unfathomable holiness of God. But it wasn't truly dealt with yet because you had to offer sacrifice yet again and again and again. See, purity under the old was only ever skin deep. The sacrifices, they couldn't cleanse the heart. They couldn't address matters of the heart. And so it was a system stuck on repeat because there was no way that it could make people perfectly holy. And that was what God was after. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Which is why the author of Hebrews concludes, and rather bluntly here, it's impossible. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, as modern people, we kind of look at that and say, well, obviously. But this was not so obvious in the ancient world. It wasn't just that Israel had a sacrificial system. Every religion had a sacrificial system. This was how you related to the gods. And now God, he had revealed this to Israel. It was the shadow of something that was to come. So this is a revolutionary statement. It wasn't wrong that Israel had learned how to relate to God, how to live with God in his shadow. He gave it to them after all. But it was still just a shadow. It was a holding pattern. But now, as we've been told in the book again and again, now the good things have come. Look at verses 5 through 9. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So what did God really desire? If it wasn't these offerings that have been offered again and again and again and again, what did God really desire? What did he want? 
The author quotes Psalm 40 here, a body you've prepared for me. What the psalmist is saying is, God, you haven't desired sacrifices because you've given me a body. You made me. You desire me. You prepared a body for me to offer back to you. You see, God doesn't want a fraction of our lives. He wants our whole lives. He wants all of us, our entire lives. Nothing held back. He wants us to be living sacrifices. But people often miss this. They miss this truth. And they start focusing on the sacrifices required. And the sacrifices had this unintended side effect that could sometimes muddy and even distort this truth. Because religious activity, any form of religious activity, has a way of helping us escape matters of the heart. Last year around this time, I spent a week apart from Julia and our girls for the first time since they were born, and it was glorious. I mean, I missed them terribly, but it was amazing. I had more spare time to do with than what I, what I knew, and so I got a ton of work done. I slept in. You know, I even had time to hang out with friends, and it turned out I still have friends. It was amazing. But as the week came to a close, I decided I'd do something nice for Julia. I would make sure that, like, a deep clean of the house. Come home to a clean house. It'd be really good. So I, I mopped the floors. I made the bed. I made sure all the dishes were done. I took out the trash, the recycling, even the organics. I did the laundry. And when Julia was editing this, she pointed out, no, Alistair, you did your own laundry. So I did my own laundry. <laughs> uh, and I even did a special project. You know, I printed some of our family photos that we had just had taken, and I framed them, and I put them along our stairwell. And so when Julia got home, after flying, you know, for 10 hours with two young children, she was tired, but she was thankful for a clean house. And she walked up the stairwell, and she looked at the photos, and said, oh, you decorated, that's nice. And, and then we went to the room, and she was unpacking. And while she was unpacking, you know, I was just looking at my phone, cat gifts or whatever. And, and then she said, do you have to do that right now? Put your phone down and be with me. And in my head, I was like, what? After all I've done for you, all that I've prepared for you, you you're, you're being a stickler? In my head, good response, perfectly holy. Uh, <laughs> I had done so much for Julia, in my mind at least, that I felt the right to be excused from any further request. Even if that request was that I pay attention to her after being apart for a week. It showed, at least in that moment, I had a transactional mindset rather than a relational mindset. Everything I'd done was to appease her, not to be with her. In the same way, an attitude of, I've made my sacrifice, I've done my obligation, I've appeased God, can lead to a heart that is still distant from God. And when you operate from this mindset, when God asks anything more of you, when he makes any request of you, it seems like a demand. It feels like too much. When God tries to instruct your life, you say, but I've done all of this. You're the one who owes me. It shows you that you have a transactional mindset rather than a relational mindset. And some of you know what it's like to treat God like this. God has his obligations and demands, and he's a little particular but he's God, and so you meet them from time to time. You've done all the right things. You're here on a Sunday. You serve in the community once in a while. You might say your prayers every so often, but once you've done it, you go on living your life. You live your life. God lives his life. And this misses the point entirely. God doesn't want your offerings. God doesn't want your meager attempts to atone for your own sins. 
God doesn't want your religious activity. God desires you. The sacrifices, they weren't just transactions. They were costly reminders of the worthiness of God. You offered your best animal, the best of the best, the most costly of the herd. You didn't offer up a one-eyed billy goat named, you know, Salazar. You know, you gave the best of your herd. And this was a reminder. God wants the best of you. The whole of your life, not just your leftovers. And whatever he may ask, he's worthy of the cost. He's worthy of the cost because a healthy relationship with God and everything it entails, being in a loving relationship with the God of the universe is worth whatever cost it might take. But the problem is that we have a tendency of offering up our second best, third best, fourth best. And even if we offer up our best to God, it's still tainted with sin or with pride or with guilt or out of shame. It's never a perfect Offering, let alone a perfectly holy sacrifice. But this is exactly why the author of Hebrews brings us into conversation with Psalm 40. It's not really about us. God's desire wasn't for sacrifices because a body you have prepared for me. Well, who's talking? The author says, Jesus. This is Jesus speaking through the Holy Spirit. A body was prepared for Jesus. And when he inhabited this body, when he incarnated into the world, he came for one purpose, fulfilling God's will in his body. He offered his body, his soul, his entire life as a perfect sacrifice. And because Jesus offered his body, there's no more need for sacrifices for sin. That's what the author says in verses 9 and 10. Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus has done away with the first. What the author is saying, he's done away with animal sacrifices, which is good news, especially if you're an animal. But it's good news for us too. Jesus has done away with animal sacrifices because he's come to establish the second. Well, what's the second? The will of God. He came to perfectly live in the will of God. God had a better desire for us than sacrifices. He has a better intention, a better aim, a better hope for your life than you being in front of an altar offering animals again and again and again. But what's his will for us? What is this good thing that has come into the world through Jesus Christ that God desired? Look at verse 10 again. And by that will, we have been sanctified. God's desire was not for Jesus to suffer needlessly. God's will was for us, for you, for me, to be sanctified. St. Paul says this too in his first letter to the Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So let's hit pause here for a moment. God wants us to be sanctified through and through. This is his aim, his intention, his good and perfect and holy will for us. But what is sanctified? I mean, this is very religious language. What does it mean to be sanctified? Here's what it means. Jesus has made you holy. 
This verb is in the perfect tense, which means it's something that took place in the past and continues into the present and will continue into the future. Jesus has set you apart as someone who is pure, as someone who is without blemish, as someone who is clean before God. If you place your faith in him, you're holy. Past, present, and future. It's a permanent state. And now you have uninhibited access into God's holy presence. You see, when we were unable to remain in holiness, when our purity fluctuated, clean, unclean, God opened up a way for us to be in an ongoing, uninterruptible relationship with him. A relationship where you can draw near to him at any time and in any place. You see, when we were busy meddling around in imperfection or playing in shadows, losing sight of God altogether at times, Jesus offered his life for us to sanctify us, to make us holy. The holiness that's required to be in the presence of God, it's not of your own doing. You could never clean yourself up enough. You could never earn it. And now suddenly, because of Christ's death, this is your permanent state. And as we read in verses 11 through 12, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifices for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This doesn't strike us as overly revolutionary. We're used to sitting for work, uh, and sometimes sitting is perceived as being lazy, or now it's like the new health crisis. Sitting is as bad as smoking, and so you might have a standing desk. But all in all, sitting in the ancient world meant something entirely different. It signified authority. Teachers, they sat when they taught, not stand. Rulers, when they made decrees, they sit. They don't stand. And so when Jesus sits, he sits at the right hand of God at a place of supreme authority, a throne that we can't comprehend. And he sits because it's finished. You see, the priests of the Old Covenant, the priests who were operating under the Torah, they were standing daily again and again and again and again to offer sacrifices for sin. It was a never-ending work. But Jesus sits down because his work is finished. It's done. It's completing. Nothing more can be accomplished because he's offered the perfect sacrifice. And the author ups the ante. He really does. Look at verse 14. Jesus sits down because by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus has perfected you for all time. Does this mean that Christians don't sin? Don't get sick. Don't lose their temper. Don't make errors in calculus. Don't shame their children accidentally. That we're already perfect in our behavior and attitudes. This clearly isn't the case. The whole letter assumes that there's still work to be done in us. It's clear in this verse too. Jesus has perfected those who are being sanctified. You, my friends, are a holy work in progress. Jesus has declared you're holy. He has declared you're sanctified. 
But there is also a sanctifying work, an ongoing work. Being sanctified is the ongoing experience of becoming who you are in Christ, who you already are. So then how has Jesus perfected us? How are we perfect in his sight? Nothing more needs to be done for God's people to be delivered from sins and brought into God's presence. Nothing more needs to be done. And to make sure we get this, that we really get this, the author turns to the promise from Isaiah again, verses 15 through 18. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Our perfection is in terms of forgiveness. Christ's people are perfected in the sense that God puts away all of our sin, forgives them, and never brings them to mind again as an act of condemnation. The writer Brendan Manning uh, tells a story of a woman who had been having visions of Jesus. And the local archbishop heard about this, news came to him, and he was worried. You know, you can't have some person having visions of Jesus and possibly mislead the people. So the archbishop goes for a visit and he meets this woman. He says, have you been having visions of Jesus? And she says, yes. And the archbishop says, well, here's what I want you to do. The next time you have one of your visions of Jesus, I want you to ask him something for me. And she said, okay, sure, what? He said, the next time you have your vision of Jesus, ask him, what was the last sin I confessed when I went to confession? And so she said, okay. Time goes by and he hears that she's having visions of Jesus again. And so the archbishop goes to investigate. He returns and he says, have you been having visions of Jesus? She says, yes. And he says, well, did you remember? And the woman said, yes, I did remember. And she took her, his hands in hers and she said, I asked Jesus what sins you confessed the last time you went to confession. And Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. It wasn't that the archbishop hadn't been to confession in a long time and therefore Jesus couldn't remember the last time he confessed his sins. It's that when you confess your sins, God doesn't remember them against you. Jesus remembers sins no more. You might not feel perfect. You might not feel holy. You might still be conscious of your mistakes, your shortcomings, your brokenness, your own sin. But God remembers your sin no more. I know some of you are saying right now, you don't know. You don't know my story. You don't know what's going on. You don't know the things that are eating me up inside. And you're right, I don't. God does. And God sees you through and through. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And if you're a follower of Jesus, God responds to your sin with these words, I don't remember. Now, it's not cheap. It's not God turning a blind eye because what God remembers instead of your sin is Christ's sacrifice for you once and for all time. 
He doesn't look at your sin. He looks at his son who endured immense suffering and death as a perfect sacrifice. His son who bore your sins in his body and who's now seated at his right hand. And so how could God ask for another sacrifice for sin? How could God remember your sins when his son bore them in his body for your forgiveness? The author wants to make this truth crystal clear to us. So he writes in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering of sin. You do not need to make any offerings for the forgiveness of your sin. And in reality, there was no sacrifice you could have ever made to enact this kind of forgiveness. It's done. God has made a way. All you can do is receive the gift of his forgiveness and be with him. And this is what grace is. This is love that Jesus was willing to be the perfect sacrifice so we could be with him forever. He, God, he doesn't want your attempts to overcome your sin. He doesn't want your attempts to appease his, his righteous anger against all that's wrong in the world. He wants your body, your soul, your all, your strength given back to him. And he's made a way for that to be possible for us when we couldn't do it. You see, when this grips you, when you understand that, that Jesus has done everything in order for you to be able to be in a relationship with God, it changes you. It makes you want to offer your life as a living sacrifice. It makes you want to respond to God. And this is what God has desired all along, that we would present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. See, as Christians with the rest of the world, we don't stand above it. We're still prone to mistakes. We still fall way short. We still sin. And when we confess our sins, however, it's not to earn forgiveness. It's not to wallow in misery or sinfulness. Confession is relational, not transactional. When Julia and I went through premarital counseling um, 11 years ago, there there is an illustration used to describe the importance of dealing with conflict well, and it stuck with me, so clearly I really needed it. But uh, every unresolved conflict is a brick. And if that conflict goes unresolved, you're laying a brick in the foundation of your relationship. And that next time you have a conflict, it's another brick. And if you don't resolve that one, another brick, another brick, another brick, another brick. And you might be able to name the bricks. That one was when you spat your gum on the floor and didn't pick it up. That one was when you didn't do the dishes. That one was uh, when you were hungry and told me uh, to stop eating salad and to get on with the steak business already. All real conflicts. But you build the, the wall. And the wall becomes so sturdy and so high that over time you have to shout at one another just to say hello. In the same way, in a similar way at least, when we sin, when there is a sin on our conscience, when it goes unrepented, a brick gets laid. And this doesn't affect God's view of us. God is God. He sees us through and through, but the bricks build up and they affect our view of him. They distort our perception of him. They start feeling insurmountable and we start believing that God couldn't possibly be happy with us, that there must be something we have to do to overcome this in order to restore our relationship with God. Brick by brick by brick. But when we confess, 
It's to experience the relational benefits of forgiveness. We confess not to earn forgiveness, but to enjoy the forgiveness that Jesus has acquired for us and assures us of. We confess out of weakness, but in doing so, we draw near to Christ and again receive the grace and mercy we need. Rightly understood, confession is the most intimate, loving, vulnerable, and empowering experience for us. Do you have bricks piling up before God? Can you name them? You probably can. You can probably think of the shortcomings in the past week or the past month, the things that you don't want to talk about or that have accrued over time and you feel like are insurmountable at this point and so you haven't dealt with them and the wall just keeps getting higher. You add brick by brick by brick and you wonder if a relationship with God is really all it's cut out to be at this point. Do you have bricks piling up before the God of the universe? One act, one act can cause them all to crumble getting on your knees in confession. Because a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. He's already forgiven you. Confession is stepping into that reality and allowing the power of the God of the universe to remove those sins from your remembrance so you can enjoy his love and his grace and his mercy time and time again. So returning to our guiding question, how do we become perfectly holy people. There's a beautiful image from one of the parables Jesus tells, the parable of the wedding feast. And this man was going to have a, a feast and none of his guests showed up. And so he sends his servants out into the streets and they begin inviting anyone and anyone who will come. So good and bad people, it doesn't matter. They invite him into the wedding feast and, and the host hands out garments, wedding garments. Without the appropriate garments, there's no entry. They're handed out by the host. They're a gift. And if you wear them, you're sanctified, you're holy, but you have to accept them. Now, you might try to sneak in without the garments, and one person does in the parable. But when you're caught, you're exposed, and you're expelled. Only the garments handed out by the host, only the garments of Christ make you fit for God's presence. Not your own no matter how elaborate or beautiful your own garments may be. But as we become accustomed to wearing these garments, a beautiful thing happens. Yes, at first we feel out of place. We feel like we're playing pretend. We're wearing a new wardrobe, but we feel very much the same inside. And so we're around all these people and we're kind of waiting to get caught in the act. But everyone else feels that way too. We're all wearing these garments that have been a gracious gift. And so over time, we all start living in accordance with how we've been clothed. You see, the garments of Christ is the power of his spirit. And when you are clothed in the forgiveness that he has perfected for you, the other part of the promise is that God will write his will and his ways on your mind and heart. So over time... As you go in the ongoing work of becoming like Christ, you're no longer pretending. He changes you. Being clothed in these garments changes you in such a way that you become more congruous with the person God made you to be. You become more free. You become more truly hopeful. You become all of these things. 
Things you could never accomplish on your own. This is how you become a perfectly holy person. Not through your own efforts. But by hearing the voice that echoes through eternity, the voice that was in the garden. The voice that cried out, where are you? The voice that cried out to those of us who are naked and aware of how blemished we are. Naked and ashamed, we hear the voice crying out, where are you? And he finds us and he clothes us as an act of grace. Saying, come, be in my presence. And some of you, you're wearing these garments and you're worried. Because things you're doing, the way you're living, you're like, I've gotten stains on the garments of Christ. No, you haven't. It is not possible. You have been given a holiness and a purity that cannot be taken away, that cannot be undermined, that cannot be decreased. So if you think there's a blemish, confess and enjoy forgiveness. And if you've never accepted the garments of Christ, if you've never accepted this, this gift of forgiveness that will change you inside and out, there is a voice that has been crying out, for eternity, where are you? It's not that God doesn't know where you are. He wants you to respond. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to clothe you. You simply have to let him. So when you walked in this morning, what garments were you wearing? And when you leave, what garments will you be wearing? 